that might be true. But when we think about memorials, I, I was thinking about Memorial Day, and uh, really, it's it's it feels like it's far away, but it's not that far away. <laughs> It'll be here before we know it, almost. Um, there's a lot to remember, a lot to remember. The history of Memorial Day in the United States is complex. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recognizes that approximately 25 places claim to have originated the Memorial Day holiday. I don't know if you realize that or not. I expected to find a very simple history for Memorial Day, but the history and the background of Memorial Day is not simple at all. Um, in fact, at Columbus State University, there is a Center for Memorial Day Research. Now think about that, a center just to research the history and the background of Memorial Day. The University of Mississippi incorporates a Center for Civil War Research that has also led research into Memorial Day's origins. Now the practice of decorating soldiers' graves with flowers is an ancient custom that's taken place throughout our country's history hundreds of years. Many of the origination claims are myths that don't have any evidence to back them up, and others are one-time events that happened at various locations, various cemeteries around the country. Uh, if you look this up, you will find that there are at least a dozen different stories and traditions, both from the South and the North, uh, that claim to have originated the custom of Memorial Day. But when you think about our country and our country's history, uh, it's easy to see there's, there's a lot to remember. There's a lot of background, a lot of history. And some of you know those kinds of events uh, in your own life, in your own personal history. You have, uh, for example, my grandfather, my, my, yeah, my paternal grandfather passed away right around Thanksgiving time, just before and so that is indelibly stamped in our family's history. And we don't get together to celebrate holidays, and particularly Thanksgiving, where we, we enjoy Thanksgiving. We enjoy being with each other. We think about the, the background of Thanksgiving, and you know, we might uh, think about the Pilgrim Fathers and all, of that go, all that goes into the background of that story. But we also remember our grandfather who passed away right around Thanksgiving time. There are certain events that happen that you can't talk about the event itself without remembering all of the details and the things surrounding. I can remember exactly where I was and what I was doing on September 11. What was it, 2001? Most of you probably can as well. Remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. We read in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, the instructions that Jesus gave to the disciples when they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, where Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And here a while back, I was thinking about this 
particular instruction from Jesus. Do this in remembrance. And I was thinking, what else would I remember about that event, about that time? We, we easily condense it all into one little uh, cup and one little wafer, right? The Lord's Supper, the communion. That's what it's all about. We remember uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and his death on the cross. But when I think back to the apostles and the disciples, those that were actually there and experienced those events, and when they gathered together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which was customary, and they did it often, regularly, what else might they have remembered besides simply just the fact that Jesus gave his body and blood? to be broken and to be spilled. I expect there are a lot of things that they would have remembered about that time. A few verses over in Luke chapter 22, there are some very interesting verses of Scripture that are fascinating to me. In verse 31, Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, or Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I just expect that almost every time Peter sat down to participate in receiving the bread and cup, I expect that it's very likely that he remembered some of these words from Jesus. The fact that Jesus foretold his denial of him. Peter, no doubt, remembering his brash words, his proclamation of faithfulness to the Lord. Lord, if if everybody forsakes you, I'm not going to forsake you. I'll go with you even to the death. Only just a short time later to find that the words of Jesus were exactly, precisely, 100% accurate. How do you get over something like that? Have any of you ever done something that you look back on and realize just how foolish you were? You maybe committed yourself, maybe overcommitted yourself, perhaps in a moment of real confidence in in your commitment. And very sincerely, you know, I have no doubt that Peter was sincere. I believe that Peter believed with his whole heart that he was committed fully to Jesus. There were just some things about his character that had not been fully revealed to him. He did not completely understand himself. We add to all of that the fact that it took place in a setting at which Jesus gave special instructions to remember. Remember this. Remember this time. 
I wonder if perhaps at other events, at other times when the disciples were together and they were sharing a meal together, maybe one of the other disciples, surely none of them would have been so unkind. But perhaps there might have been someone there who remembered what Peter had done, what Peter had said. And if Peter was at all like me, he would have perhaps at least thought, maybe said, oh, of course you had to bring that up. That's the one thing I'm sure. If Peter could have picked one thing out of all of his life to to have wiped clean and erased at least from his memory, I'm sure it would have been that one moment in time. All of the guilt and the shame and the regret that certainly accompanied those words and that experience, which incidentally, none of these are very helpful for very long. Can I just remind you and encourage you with this thought? This is not necessarily a part of the message, but guilt and shame and regret are not helpful for long at all. Sometimes it, it, it turns into flagellation. You know what flagellation is? You remember the stories from church history of the, of the monks who in their effort to complete the sufferings of Christ, they had their whips and their chains and the things that they would beat themselves with until they were bloody because they were trying to complete the sufferings of Christ by making themselves suffer. Now, people, you may not have this kind of temperament, but I tend to have this kind of temperament. If I make a a mistake, an error, or stumble, or fall in some way, I have a tendency to go into self-flagellation, to beat myself. Oh, I can't believe, I can't believe I did that. Oh, and just beat, beat, beat. And that's about as smart as wallowing in the mud puddle after you trip and fall down in it. Now, for some reason, some of us tend to go that direction, but it's not helpful at all. It's not helpful at all. The reality of this situation, the wonderful reality, is that Peter received the special help of Jesus. I'm certain that Peter no doubt remembered the prediction of Jesus and the reality that he did actually deny Jesus, but hopefully Peter remembered very quickly the words that Jesus went on to say, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Isn't that wonderful? To know that Jesus prayed for Peter and the reality that we are told from Scripture that Jesus has prayed and continues, I believe, to pray for every one of us. That we have an intercessor, an advocate with the Father. I can't prove this, but when I look over at 1 Peter chapter 5, I see some what I think are pretty clear parallels to this passage from Luke. Keep in mind, in the back of your mind, this 
these words of Jesus, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, and after you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you. Verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And after you have returned, strengthen the brethren. The God of all grace who has called you will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As I said, I can't prove that there's any actual connection between these two passages of Scripture and that this is what Peter was thinking of when he wrote these words. But I see here some pretty clear parallels, and to me, this passage from 1 Peter demonstrates some of the lessons that Peter learned as a result of his experience through the prediction and uh, the prediction of Jesus and the denial that Peter completed uh, when he fulfilled that prediction, and then the prayer of Jesus for Peter. The first thing that we see here is simply this, that Peter has learned to be humble, and he recommends this to us, to be humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Peter learned this from personal experience. Peter lived this reality as one who very boldly proclaimed, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to forsake you. Everybody else might run and hide, but I will go with you to prison even to death. And meaning every word, yet he learned from personal experience what someone has said. Habits eat willpower for breakfast. Have you ever heard that? Habits eat willpower for breakfast. And Peter was so accustomed to folding when the pressure came. When there was no pressure and when Jesus was right close at hand, he was fine and he could stand up and boldly proclaim his faith. But when it came time, the pressure was applied. His habitual tendency was to cave in. And that's exactly what he did. I believe along with this, what part of this recommendation to humility, what it means is, is no hiding or pretending 
No hiding or pretending. And this is not a part of wallowing in the mud puddle of guilt, but this is simply a recognition of who I am and being honest about it. Yes, Lord, this is who I am. He says, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He is the sympathizing Jesus. He knows. He understands. The Bible says he knows our frames. He remembers that we are dust. Like one other preacher said, we're just dirt and spit. Be humble, but also be watchful. Be watchful. Luke chapter 22, verse 31, going back to that verse, Jesus is giving uh, Peter a very clear heads up. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And here in First Peter, Peter gives us these words, Be sober-minded and watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let me talk to you for just a few minutes about dealing with the devil. I don't recommend that you make a deal with the devil, but every one of us has to deal with the devil. In other words, there is a, a, a reality of spiritual opposition, spiritual warfare, that every one of us who names the name of Christ is engaged in and must engage in if we are to make it through to heaven. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all that we can try to live for the, the Lord in a world that's bound for hell with an enemy, an adversary, and not have to deal with the fact that there is a devil. Borrowing a little bit from Warren Wearsby, he says we ought to respect the devil. In other words, this is not the kind of respect that you would give someone in authority over us, but it's the kind of respect that acknowledges that me, by myself, I am no match for the devil. There's another passage of Scripture that talks about the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. He prowls around here, Peter says, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And friends, you and I in our own strength and our own ability are no match for the devil. Respect him. Also learn to recognize him. Learn to recognize him. Recognize that he is a liar. Recognize him when he comes around tempting you. If you don't intend to buy, don't listen to the sales pitch. One of my favorite preachers is Albert Barr. Was Albert Barr. He's gone on to heaven now. I remember hearing him tell a story about how when he and his wife were married not too long that a salesman came to their door and knocked on the door and they opened the door and the 
salesman said, good afternoon, sir. Have I got a deal for you? And launched into his, his sales pitch. And, and uh, Brother Barr said, after, by the time that sales pitch was done, he said, I had bought something that we didn't need and couldn't afford. And he said, when I closed the door, I felt eyeballs on me. And he said, I turned around and there was my wife just looking at me. And he said, we didn't need that, did we? And she said, no. He said, we couldn't afford that, could we? And she said, no. But he said, what was I supposed to do? He was so good. To which she responded, you should not have listened to him. And so he said, well, then, honey, the next one that comes to the door, you can answer the door. So he said a little while later, uh, a few days later, whatever the time frame was, they had a knock at the door. And he said, I looked at her and I said, sick him, honey. And he said, she walked to the door, opened it, said, no, thank you, and then closed the door on him. And he said, she turned around and looked at me and said, see, If you don't intend to buy, don't listen to the sales pitch. Learn to recognize the devil when he comes around. And then after you have learned to recognize him, resist him. If we want to be good and godly and be pleasing in the Lord's sight, it makes sense, friends, that we ought to do everything within our power to remove temptation and remove ourselves from temptation. If you are a recovering alcoholic, you don't go into the saloon to ask for a glass of milk. You know, don't put yourselves in situations where you know you're going to be exposing yourself to a weakness. Do everything you can to, to separate yourself from those things. That's just common sense. But at the end of the day, after we have done everything that we can do, we know, friends, the reality is we still have an enemy who is still after our souls, and there will be times when we must face him in temptation, and the only thing we can do is resist, resist. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith, firm in your faith. Be watchful. Be humble. Be watchful. And then finally, be hopeful. Be hopeful. How do you get from an experience of denying the Lord where you can use that to help you be hopeful? Look at verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter here gives us a little list of reasons to be hopeful. One is simply this, that trials are temporary. Whatever problem we are going through, whether it's something that has come upon us from outside of ourselves or whether it is something self-inflicted, sometimes those are the hardest ones to get over. 
those that are self-inflicted, the ones we want to just keep beating ourselves and kicking ourselves over. Oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. Those are the hardest ones to get over. But even those are just temporary. You can get up and move on out of the mud puddle. You don't have to stay there and wallow in it. Grace is available. Oh, friends, aren't you glad grace is available? Oh, it's such a wonderful truth. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, the God of all grace. Yes, he's a God of judgment. He is a God who is holy, but he is also the God of all grace. And Jesus told Simon or Peter, he said, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And incidentally, Jesus was addressing Peter directly, but the you, if you look at the grammar, the you is plural. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you. It's as if Jesus is talking to the whole group of disciples and he addresses Simon, but he says, Satan has desired to have you all. Simon and all of you, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. The grace of God that's available. Another reason to be hopeful is that we are destined for glory. We are destined for glory in spite of the past, in spite of the denial, in spite of the betrayal, in spite of the, the, the failures. Whatever is in our past, we are, we are destined for glory. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, we are being made. We are, we are people who are in the process of being made. That's what those four words mean. The King James Version says that Christ will perfect you. Perfect you. The word is here in the English Standard Version, it gives us the word restore. The idea behind the original word is simply the idea of being mended. Being mended. In other words, God will take what is, is broken and put it back together and make it whole again. So I can't help but believe that when Peter is giving us these words, he's thinking back to a time when he had denied his Lord. And that when Jesus had risen from the grave, he gave special instructions to some of those early witnesses to his resurrection. Go, go back, tell my disciples, oh, and tell Peter that I've gone ahead of you and I'm waiting for you. Mended, restored. Confirm. There's that word confirm, that Christ will restore and confirm you. That, the idea behind that word is to be stabilized. Boy, that was certainly something that Peter needed, wasn't it? You remember a moment ago when I said habits eat willpower for breakfast, and Peter found that though his intentions were sincere and he never meant to deny Christ. He earnestly desired to, be, to, to stand up for Jesus. 
He found that his habit of caving in under pressure overtook all of his willpower. He desperately needed to be stabilized in his faith. And he found that through Pentecost. To strengthen. Christ will restore, confirm, and strengthen. That is to be made strong. And then established. To be established. And the idea behind being established is simply having a firm foundation. A firm foundation upon which we stand. There's a lot to remember when we think about the Last Supper. When we look back, we think about the words of Jesus. We think about him blessing and breaking the bread and distributing that amongst the disciples and passing around the cup. But I think there are a lot of other things to remember, too, about that experience. And I believe when Peter thought back, he remembered the words of Jesus. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And Peter found through all of this that there was a God of all grace who would restore and confirm and strengthen and establish. Amen. Praise be.